Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the show. Simon here. This week, I am joined by the journalist and author Johan Hari. So many of us are struggling to focus and pay attention to what we need to. It can feel like a moral failing, as if there is something wrong with us individually. But Johan argues that is not the case. The problem runs much deeper. Teenagers now focus on one task for only 65 seconds, he says, while office workers aren't much better managing just three minutes. It won't surprise you to hear that digital has a significant role to play. After all, how many people don't have a somewhat dysfunctional relationship with their phones? But there are other factors too, including what he calls surveillance capitalism and the way childhood freedom has been curtailed. Johan's book is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, and it is highly recommended. And before we get to our chat, just a heads up, this episode contains swearing and some adult themes. Johan Hari, I can't tell you how nice it is to see your face. How are you? I'm good. I'm very impressed that you said my name right first time. I once waited for six hours with a broken arm in casualty because they were calling for Joanna Harry to come forward. So I'm very impressed, Simon. You're a rare instance. Got it right first time. Joanna Harry. That's a cool name, man. <laughs> it is a cool name. In some alternate universe, that's my sister. But sadly, I got to be the one who got born, not her. Anyway, listen, it's a pleasure to have you on. I've long been a devourer of your books and you've produced another literary triumph so first things first i'm going to take my metaphoric cap off and doff it to you well done oh thank you very much i accept your metaphoric hat doffing with pleasure thank you so much i'm chuffed by that (laughs) and the plaudits are rolling in my favorite quote so far is read this book to save your mind by susan kane and i i think that that sums it up really well what we're talking about what we're going to talk about in terms of attention, focus, how it's taking a massive hit 
it's to me such an obviously important topic it's something i've covered with for example cal newport Mm. and various other people and when i've put out certain messages off the back of those episodes criticizing should we say the digital impact on our lives there are some people who get very twitchy and touchy about it and i know that you've had experience of that too and to me it seems crazy to deny what in my opinion is glaringly obvious yeah i'm actually very sympathetic to the people who his initial response to this is to go oh you know doesn't every generation think this, right? You can read letters from one monk to another nearly a thousand years ago where one of them effectively says, oh, mate, my attention ain't what it used to be. So when I felt for a long time, I felt like my own attention was getting worse. I knew most of my friends thought their attention was getting worse. But I responded the way these critics you're talking about respond. I just said, look, this is just a perennial human problem. You get older, your mind deteriorates, you mistake your own deterioration for the deterioration of the world, right? It's much more, it's a much more appealing message. But I started looking at some of the evidence around this just very early on. I was looking at some of the quite eye-catching figures. The average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. For every one child who was diagnosed with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who are identified with that problem. And I I start to think, well, is something happening here? Because to me, it felt like things that require deep focus, like reading a book, watching long films, things that are very deep to my Mm. sense of myself, felt more and more like running up a down escalator. I could do it, but it was getting harder. But of course, your individual impressions, that's not science. So I decided to really investigate this, mostly because I was worried about some young people I love, including a very specific one who I'm sure we'll we'll get to. who seemed to me to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, right? Where nothing still or serious could touch him. So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world to interview over 200 of the leading experts on focus and attention from in very different places, from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne, even in cities that don't begin with the letter M. I don't know why I suddenly got very alliterative there. And, and, and I learned from them that there's scientific evidence for 12 different factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. And loads of those factors that can make your attention worse have been significantly rising in recent years. So I believe if you look at the best evidence from those scientists and you weigh them against the counter arguments, which I've thought about very carefully and and weighed heavily and researched the evidence for, I think there's pretty strong evidence that we are living in a serious attention crisis. I think most people can see that around them, particularly in our children. And the main thing I learned is your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by these big and powerful forces. And we're going to have to respond in two ways. We have to protect ourselves and our kids at an individual level in our in our personal private lives as much as we can. And we've got to take on the forces that are screwing up and raiding our attention. Because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, do you know what, mate? Um, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. To which the logical response is, yeah, I'll learn to meditate, but fuck you. You need to stop pouring itching powder on me. And we need to stop you pouring itching powder on me. So I think when you explore the complexity of this, and it is a very complex debate, and there's reasonable scientists with lots of different perspectives, I think the most persuasive scientists are people like Professor Joel Nigg, the leading expert on one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the world, who, when I interviewed him in Portland, Oregon, said to me that we need to ask if we're now living in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, which is an environment where 
all of us are going to struggle more and more to pay attention unless we start to put this right. Yes. I tell you what, what a fantastic uh, start. You do have a good way with words, both spoken <laughs> and written, Johan. Oh, so geez. as you said, you've identified these 12 areas and then underneath that, you, we've got the individual and the societal, should we say? Yeah, exactly. And we'll focus on those. We're talking, just to backtrack again a little bit, about our ability to focus, our ability to pay attention. And I couldn't remember it off the top of my head, but I know you've, there's a Zen quote that you've got in the book. And I am someone who, who meditates. And there is another Zen quote that is that there are three key factors to Zen. Everything changes. Everything is connected and pay attention. The implication mm -hmm. being that our ability to pay attention is fundamental to a good life. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And one of the ways I started to think about it is I would just say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever done in your life that you're proud of, whether it's learning to play the guitar, setting up a business, being a good dad, whatever it might be. That thing you're proud of required a lot of attention and focus and when attention and focus break down when for example working in office in an office dissolves into just a hailstorm of three minute pellets then that's your working life your ability to achieve your goals and your ability to solve your problems also begins to break down because achieving goals requires sustained focus over a long period of time solving problems requires deep attention to those problems usually not in every case but in most cases so i think you're right that when when your attention breaks down, you become almost like a kind of stump of yourself, right? You can sense what you would have been had you been able to apply yourself, but you feel like you can't get there, which is why that, that, that Zen insight, it's why so many philosophies throughout human history have placed the need for deep attention at the heart of explaining to people what a good life is. And we need to rediscover those insights there's a degree to which that's just a perennial human problem there's always going to be some attention challenges in a human life um but we are particularly acutely facing that at the moment and our kids are particularly acutely facing that at the moment you mentioned things like reaching your goals etc but also it's it's purely a question as well of feeling peace and feeling happiness isn't it i remember cal newport saying to me a distracted life is damn near unlivable so if i give a personal example I do meditate. Admittedly, I think I'm easily distracted too. But I had a really bad night's sleep recently one night. And the next day, so I set app limits, for example, on my phone. Mm -hmm. We're in the middle of the whole Novak Djokovic storm as we, <laughs> as we record. And honestly, I was lapping up that story the day after I couldn't sleep like it was some highly addictive drug. I couldn't get enough. The never-ending scrolling, the flipping from news outlet to news outlet. And something I noticed that came with it, and I was keeping this in mind as it was happening because I knew we were talking, is that when that happens, when you disappear down this distraction rabbit hole, feelings that accompany it are things like shame, frustration, what's wrong with me, mm. that sense of personal failing and everything that comes with it is a very unpleasant experience. I think, that, I think you've just gone to a really important aspect of this whole debate that only came to me quite late in working on the book. So if you think about these 12 factors that are fucking up our ability to pay attention, um, one of the things that happens is they interact with each other and each one makes the other worse. So think about that experience you just had, right? 
you couldn't sleep and the next day you were much more inclined to keep scrolling and scrolling about this tennis argument, right? In a way, what I began to think of, if you think about, because when, of course, when I talk, when I say to people, I wrote this book about why we can't pay attention, loads of people say, oh, you wrote a book about smartphones, right? And when I started researching the book, I initially thought that would be the biggest factor in the book. In fact, it's not the biggest of the 12 factors. There's quite a few factors that are bigger, but they interact. So in that example, you just gave in your own life is a really good one, right? So think about sleep. I interviewed some of the leading experts on sleep in the world, and the evidence is very clear. Sleep, really good sleep, is essential for you to be able to focus and pay attention. If you if you stay awake for 19 hours, which doesn't feel like very long when you say it, your attention is as impaired as if you were legally drunk. You get to the same level if you just stay awake for a few weeks, but you're only getting six hours sleep a night. And one guy who I interviewed about this, Dr. Charles Seisler, who's at Harvard Medical School, who's advised everyone from the US Secret Service to the Boston Red Sox on sleep and made loads of breakthroughs in its study, did this experiment, really haunted me. Kind of simple. They got to, they put together two technologies. There's a technology that can scan your eyes and there's a technology that can scan your brain. And so they monitor what you're looking at and they monitor what's happening in your head. And what they discovered is when you're tired and you don't have to be that tired, you can appear to be fully awake. You're talking just as surely as I'm talking to you. You're looking around you. But whole parts of your brain have literally gone to sleep. It's called local sleep because it's local to one part of the brain. And this is important because when you're sleeping, your brain is repairing. It's healing. It's cleaning itself of the metabolic waste that builds up during the day. It's taking it down to your liver. It's washing it out of your body. When you don't sleep, your brain has not healed. You're going around literally with an impaired brain. Um, now think about that in, in your case. You didn't sleep well. I didn't sleep well last night either. I've had enough, so much caffeine today that I might actually have a stroke while talking to you. <laughs> um, so you, you didn't sleep well. And so if you think of, if you think of these apps, things like Facebook, TikTok, whatever it was you were scrolling through, as like a virus, right? Uh, an analogy we're all uncomfortably familiar with now. You think of it as like a virus, it's going to be potent in any situation, right? And indeed, it is designed to be powerful and and hack your attention in the case of these social media companies in a way I'm sure we'll come to. But it's like a virus, but it arrives at a moment when your immune system is already down, right? You're already doing loads of things that make your your ability to resist things that want to fuck your attention uh, much, much harder, right? Um, so these things, this is true of our kids. There's all sorts of things we're doing to our kids that mean that they're much more vulnerable to these apps. There's all sorts of things we're doing to ourselves from the way we eat, which is screwing up our ability to focus, the way we don't sleep, the hours we overwork, the pollution, the air pollution we're exposed to. There's a whole range of factors that are making us more vulnerable to being hacked. And you've got to deal with that at both ends, right? We've got to deal with the the virus, we've got to deal with the thing that's invading us. There's all sorts of practical things we can do to make that virus less potent. And we've got to deal with the things that are making our immune system so weak to it in the first place. So if you had slept well the night before, Mm. you'd still be, you know, the app you're using is still designed to hack your attention. There'd still be some threats to it, but it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be as vulnerable. Does that, does that ring true to you? A hundred percent. Yeah. Since catching up on my sleep, absolutely. I've been able to have a brief look set the app limits, which I have on my phone. I have 40 minutes a day so I can post a couple of things, check the news that I need to, but without disappearing down the rabbit hole. But on this day, it's that whole um, prefrontal cortex, the break on the amygdala, let's say, it was just so weak. There was this tiny little voice going, don't do it. And the other one was going, shut up, 
just do it. You know? <laughs> and, but no, absolutely. Since I've caught up, it's been completely different. You mentioned children and they're obviously such a worrisome area. I've seen it with our little girl. I've seen it when we've been on trains and you see groups of kids together and they're not communicating with each other. They're on digital devices, completely unconnected from each other in a way that certainly you and I didn't have to go through when we were growing up. Which brings me to your nephew. You were very worried about what you were seeing with him. So can you just give a quick brief overview of that and then perhaps lead into your own personal trip? I don't want to spend too long on this, but it's obviously very illustrative. Yeah, and I think we, I hope we get to talk about kids more generally because there's so much in that. But it's my godson, Adam. Um, and it's funny, the instigating event for this happened, you can't see it, but the sofa just behind, on the sofa just behind my laptop here. So when he was nine, um, my godson became freakishly obsessed with Elvis Presley. I never understood how. So we'd go around singing like Viva Las Vegas and Suspicious Minds. And what was so cute is he didn't know that it was, that was like a cheesy cliche. He thought he was being authentically cool. And when I would tuck him in, he would obsessively get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life, right? One night he said to me, very intensely, he said to me, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I'm like, sure, I'll take you to where Elvis lived. Yeah, yeah. In the way that you give promises to like, little kids knowing that next day it'll be what Legoland or whatever. Um, And he said, no, do you really promise you'll take me to Graceland? I was like, yeah, I absolutely promise. And I never thought of it again until 10 years later when so many things had gone wrong. So he dropped out of school when he was 15. He just dissolved into this fractured. It was like he spent all his time alternating between his iPad his phone, his laptop, his life was just this blur of YouTube and Snapchat and porn. And and one day we were sitting on my sofa and I was, we'd been trying to talk all day and he just, nothing was getting any traction in his mind. And I was frankly disgusted at myself because I wasn't that much better. And I suddenly remembered this moment all those years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what? He didn't even remember this thing all those years before. And I was like, no, we've got to break this numbing routine. This is no way to live. Let's go to Graceland. Uh, and, and I could see that the ideas of sort of getting away appealed to him. But I said, to, you've got to promise one thing, which is that when we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel, right? We'll go all over the South, but you've got to leave your phone in the hotel. And he said, yeah, I promise. And I'm sure he meant it. And two weeks later, we landed in New Orleans. We went there first. A little while later, we got to Graceland a couple of weeks later. And when you arrive at the gates of Graceland now, this is even before COVID, there's no one to show you around. What happens is they give you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. So, you you know, it says go left, go right. It explains the room you're in. And in every room you go into, there's a picture of that room that you can manipulate on the iPad, right? So what happens is everyone walks around Graceland just staring at their iPad. But I'm sort of getting more and more tense as I'm looking at this, right? No one's, people aren't looking up, right? And we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. And there was a Canadian couple next to me and the guy turned to his wife and he said, oh, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I I laughed because I thought he was joking. And then I just turned and I look at him and his wife are just swiping back and forward. And I said, well, hey, sir, there's um, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head because we're actually in the jungle room. You don't have to look at a picture of it. We're, I mean, look, we're literally there. And they, of course, thought I was crazy and they sort of hurriedly went into the next room. 
And I turned to my godson to sort of laugh about it and go, oh, look, isn't this funny? And he was in a corner looking at Snapchat because from the moment we landed, he could not stop. And I went up to him and I did that thing so many people in a parental position have done that never works. I tried to physically grab the phone off him and I said to him, I know you think that you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you're missing out. You're not showing up at your own life. You're not present in your own life. You're, you're constantly being distracted and, 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 and invaded in this way. And he stormed off. And that, that night I found him in the Heartbreak Hotel, which is where we were staying. It's just down the street from Graceland. He was sitting by the swimming pool, which is shaped like a guitar. And he was just looking at his phone. And I went up to him very quietly and I apologized. And he didn't look up from his phone, but he said, I know something is really wrong and I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought I need to investigate attention. I think there's something happening here. Absolutely. And we're going to talk again about what you've discovered. But as well, tell me about your own personal journey to Princetown, wasn't it? Provincetown. Yeah, Prov- yeah sorry, it's a great Provin- place. Provincetown. So you've even in your own life. So you're talking about someone who's been particularly affected at a particularly vulnerable age, who is really struggling, really suffering, dropped out of school, can't put his finger on what is going on. But even in your own life, you felt that there was this inability to focus, you were disappearing down social media rabbit holes, and you felt that you that was making you a, a less palatable, less nice person, because it does obviously yeah. prey on our darker impulses. So you actually took yourself off and hid yourself away, and that was pretty revelatory as well. Well, it was revelatory in a positive and a negative way, actually, because when I got back from Memphis, I was just disgusted at myself, at him, at just everything that was going on. And, I, and, I, and I, I just announced to all my friends, look, I've been online for 15 years or whatever it was at that point, a bit more. I'm just tired of being wired in this way. I, I need a break, right? And, and I was still at that time very locked in thinking of this as an individual problem because that's how we're taught to think about mm. it, right? It's yeah. a problem in you and it's a problem with the phone, right? When actually later I learned it's much more complicated than that, although, of course, those two factors play some role. Uh, so I booked, um, I was very lucky I could do this because my previous books in the film from one of them had done well at that by that point. I just booked a little room in a beach house in a place called Provincetown, which is an amazing place. It's in Cape Cod. It's, um, and to give you a sense of what it's like, it's the kind of place where more than one person earns a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid and singing songs about cunnilingus. Um So <laughs> I went there for three months with no smartphone, and no laptop that could get online. My friend Imtiaz gave me an old knackered laptop that had broken so it couldn't get online, but I could still use it like an old-fashioned word processor. And loads of things happened in Provincetown, and I had some ups and downs, but the thing that most blew my mind is how much my attention came back. I thought, oh yeah, I've gotten older, maybe it's just just aging. My attention went back to what it was when I was 17. Mm. I could sit and read books for eight hours a day. It blew my mind. And when I got ready to leave Provincetown, I was like, I'm never going to go back to that yeah. way of being. Right? I'm fixed. Yeah, yeah. I said it. I've sorted it, you know. Um, and I remember I got the boat. Promised Town is across from Boston where I'd left my phone with my friend. And I got my laptop and I, I got the phone. I got the boat over to Boston. And I remember even, and I got violently sick on the, it was a really bad, choppy uh, boat journey. And I got my phone back and even remember the Apple font just seeming really odd to me when I saw it. And actually, if I'm honest, 
I also thought before I came back, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to spend days and days going through email. There's going to be such a mountain of email. But actually, because I'd set up an auto reply, just going, no, no one can contact me. Actually, I was like, oh, I only, it took me about an hour to go through. I was like, oh, wait, I thought the world was desperately craving me while I was away. It was like, oh, there's almost nothing here. And within a couple of months, I never went back to how bad I'd been before I went to Provincetown, but within a couple of months, my attention was shit again. And, and I only began to understand it when I went to interview this guy, an amazing man named Dr. James Williams, who, who was a senior strategist at Google, was horrified by what they were doing to our attention, quit, and has become, I think, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. He's now affiliated with Oxford University. Mm. And he said to me, the mistake you've made, Johan, is you've acted like the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask, right? There's a case for wearing a gas mask. If I lived in Beijing, I would definitely wear a gas mask, right? But it's not solving the problem of air pollution. This is a, this is problem is largely being driven by big factors that are acting on all of us. Now, there are things we can do to integrate some of those changes I made into Provincetown into our everyday lives. I'm strongly in favor of individual action. There are dozens of things that everyone could do today and tomorrow that will help them. And I'm passionately in favor of them and I write about them in the book. But I also want to level with people yeah. that will only get us so far. Because in an environment that is, to some degree, designed to fuck your attention, to sell your attention to advertisers, um, that has so many factors that are invading your attention from the way we work to the food we eat, you're, you are to some degree, to go back to that metaphor, going to be running up a down escalator. Now you can. I could teach people how to run up a down escalator better. I, I couldn't, but yeah, I couldn't do it myself because I've been grossly overeating over Christmas. But you know what I mean? Yeah. But we, we've got to tackle it at both levels. And I know that can sound very big. I'm happy to give lots of practical ways in which we can, uh, places I went to that tackled that bigger level in very practical ways as well. But, but we've, we've got to do both. Absolutely. Right. Let's start then on the personal, as it were. And we can, sure. I think let's, we don't need to spend as long on this because this is an area I've spoken about before. But in terms of sort of personal agency, and actually just to preface that, I did my own mini version of nowhere near as dramatic as you, but I've been working flat out for several years now and I realized, you know, I needed to unplug. So over Christmas and middle of December, deleted my social media accounts, stayed off the phone and it was really nice. I came back on, I don't know, maybe January 2nd and immediately bang, there I was. I got a few messages. Mm. Hey, happy new year. What are your plans for this year? Through to me putting out posts for the podcast or whatever else. And then there's that impulse to check it. And very quickly, the old stuff came back. So I completely resonate with what you're saying about using a, a gas mask to deal with air pollution. However, okay, so there are a few things we can do. I know there's, you've got your box that you put your phone in. I'd like you to tell me about that. But so for example, for me, you know, I do meditate. I find that that helps with being able to respond rather than react, except when I'm really tired in the Novak Djokovic mm. example. I have app limits on my phone, so I can only have 45 minutes. When I go and work on the book I'm working on, I'll go to the library, I'll put airplane mode on, my phone will be away. And I'll tell you what, when I do that, it's blissful. It's quiet, except when rhyme time's on. Um, it's quiet, <laughs> you know, it's nice. And it's, it's a relief. So those are a couple of things. So, you know, slowing down as well, active relaxation, for example, making sure you're going out for a walk and not just as a way to get from A to B, but soaking up your environment. So uh, those are a few of the things that I would say. 
In terms of what we can do individually, if you could just rattle off some advice that you would share so that people can can implement in their, in their own lives before we move on to the big picture stuff. Yeah, so the, one of the ways that I came to understand this was when I went to interview a guy called Professor Earl Miller, who's at MIT. He's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, there's one thing you have to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only think about one or two things consciously at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not significantly changed for 40,000 years. Ain't going to change on any timescale. You and me are going to see you can only think about one or two things at a time. But we've fallen for a mass delusion. The average teenager believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what scientists do is they get people into labs and they get them to think they're doing lots of things at the same time. And what they discover is in fact, you can't do that. What happens is you juggle very rapidly between those tasks. You focus, refocus, refocus, refocus. And it turns out that comes with a really big cost. The technical term for this is the switch cost effect. Basically, when you try to do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll be less creative. You'll remember much less of what you do. And there was actually a study that uh, there's loads of evidence for this, but there's a small study that really brought it home for me. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, they called in a scientist to do a little experiment. He split a group of their workers into two. And the first group was told, just do whatever your task is, get on with it, and you won't be interrupted. And the second group was told, do whatever your task is, and you'll have to answer email and phone calls, heavy amount of phone calls. And then at the end of it, both groups were tested for their IQ. The group that had not been distracted scored on average 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been distracted. To give you a sense of how big that effect is, if you or me sat to get sat down together now, Simon, and smoked a fat spliff, our IQs would go down by five points. So at least in the short term, being chronically distracted is twice as bad for your IQ, which is connected, of course, to your attention, as getting stoned. You'll be better off I stress again in the short term, because there's a longer term debate about the effect of cannabis on IQ. But in the short term, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and only doing one thing at a time than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and being interrupted by email and phone calls in the way so many of us are. Now, of course, you can not be interrupted and not get stoned, which is the ideal option for focus. But so one thing we have to understand is these things that you think are a really small thing are having a huge effect on your attention. Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon found that if you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. But loads of us are never getting 23 minutes straight. The, even the average Fortune 500 CEO only gets 26 minutes to himself a day. Now, what does that mean? If you open your phone and it says you had, I don't know, four hours screen time that day, that sounds bad enough. But if that, those four hours were spread throughout the day, you lost way more than that in lost focus. So firstly, know how much this invasion degrades you. It would feel like such a small thing now if I reached behind my laptop where I know my phone is and I just look, glanced at my text while you were answering a question. But that takes a huge cognitive cost for me. And my questions, my answers to you would be so much less good. We're all being downgraded in this way. So at a level of, there's obviously I go through dozens of things people can do, but let's start with just one. You mentioned it, you alluded to it. You can't see the corner of the room over there. 
Um, I've got something called a K-Safe. These people should so be playing me commission, by the way, because <laughs> keep writing in every interview. K-Safe, you can get it online. Very simple. It's a plastic safe. You take the lid off. You put your phone in. Uh, you put the lid back on. You turn the dial and it will cut you off. Well, it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and 24 hours. On my laptop, I've got an app called Freedom. Cuts you off from either specific websites. You can name whatever the website is or from the entire internet for however long you tell it to and you just won't be able to get online once you've done it i use them for four hours a day i will not sit down to watch a film with my partner if we don't both put our phones in that thing because it does my head in if we if, if we were suddenly pulled out of it uh, this is the technical term for this is pre-commitment pre-commitment is when you want to do something you want to you you want to do something like not eat the pringles not check your phone but you know your crack right so pre-commitment is where you lock yourself in in the future. You don't buy the Pringles in the supermarket because you know if you put them in the cupboard and you wake up at 2 a.m., they're going to call to you. It's a way of binding your future self. Um, I interviewed Professor Molly Crockett, who's one of the experts on this at Yale. So all sorts of forms of pre-commitment are really important for locking ourselves in. And it's really hard at first, but as you do it, you start to get the joys of focus back. And the joys of focus are so much greater than the shitty pleasures of distraction and interruption. 100%. You know, writing a book, and I'm certainly nowhere near as accomplished or experienced at it as you are. But when I go to the library and I write the book, after a while, it's a relief that I know that all I'm doing is this one thing and not being pulled from mm. pillar to post. And that those feelings, like I mentioned, of shame or frustration or what's wrong with me are completely absent. And even though the work is challenging and at times hair pulling out a ball, it's, <laughs> it's a very different feeling than the feeling of being distracted. You know, whether it be like watching a film and like going for devices, which is a horrible feeling. That's so interesting the way you just put that, because it's not despite the fact that it's challenging, but in part because it's challenging that you find it easy yeah, to bring attention. Yeah, you here, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I know this is a subject you really care about as well. So I wanted to understand this better. So I went and interviewed Professor Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. You have no idea how long it took me to learn to say that. <laughs> yeah. Who uh, is the, what was, um, I think I did the last ever interview with him because sadly he died not long afterwards, which is a terrible, even though he was a very old man, it's a terrible loss. And and um, Professor Csikszentmihalyi, I'm going to say it as many times as I can now I can, he made a breakthrough in, he coined the phrase flow states and pioneered the studying of them. And everyone listening has experienced a flow state in their life. So a flow state is when you're doing something and you really get into it and time seems to fall away and your sense of self seems to fall away and your attention just comes effortlessly. The way one rock climber put it is it's like you are the rock you're climbing when you're in flow. And different people get into flow for different things. Some people, it'll be making bagels. Some people, it'll be brain surgery. Some people, it'll be playing the oboe. Whatever, whatever it, for me, it's writing. Whatever it might be in your life. Um, so flow is really important for the debate about attention. And it really relates to what you're saying. Because um, flow is both the deepest form of attention humans can provide and the most, uh, the easiest in one sense. Yeah. It's not. It's not like when you're trying to cram you know, for an exam or something, we're like, oh shit, I've got to memorize all this. It, I mean, maybe some people get into flow memorizing shit, but that's, I've never met them. It's a gusher of attention that is inside all of us. So the thing I wanted to ask Mahali was, and did ask him is, okay, 
where do we drill to get that gusher of attention? And he discovered a huge number of things about this. And I know you're going to be exploring them in, in your book, Simon. I, I, for me, I think there were three that would be really helpful to everyone listening. Three aspects, three things you can do tomorrow that will maximize your chances of getting into flow. There's no guarantee, but maximize the chances. The first is you've got to just choose one goal. If you're trying to do two things, three things, four things, you'll never get into flow. You've got to be, I want to paint this canvas. I want to climb this rock. Whatever it is, you've got to only be doing one thing at a time. So you can immediately see how the environment we live in is fucking our ability to get into flow. The second thing is that goal has to be meaningful to you. So for you, the goal might be to learn to play the guitar. When I play the guitar, it sounds like a cat is being slowly tortured to death. People phone the RSPCA. I'm not going to get into flow doing that, right? For me, it's writing. You might not like writing. It's got to be a goal that's meaningful to you. When, when, when you're trying to do something that's not meaningful to you, your, atish, your, your attention will slip and slide like you're trying to hold a greased pig. The, the third factor, and this is where it totally relates to you saying, even though it's hard, is it really helps, it maximizes your chances of getting into flow if you choose something that is just at the edge of your abilities, that's just at the edge of your comfort zone. Um, so let's say you're a medium talent rock climber. If you just try to clamber over your garden wall, you're not going to get into flow. There's no challenge in that. Equally, if you suddenly try to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, you're not going to get into flow because you're just it's just going to be, oh, fucking hell, that's too much. You want to choose a rock face, a rock face that is slightly higher and harder than the last rock you tried to climb. Um, and so you want these three things. One goal, a meaningful goal, one at the edge of your comfort zone, at the edge of your abilities. That maximizes your chances of getting into flow. Um, but but we live in an environment that's undermining our ability to do that. In fact, Mahali found in the, the early 90s that one of the single biggest, well, one of the experiences people have which least produces flow is looking at screens. Mm. Um, now, obviously, screens have changed since then. It's not, it's, the debate has slightly changed. So you'd want to handle that finding with a little bit of caution. But I do think, given what we know, given what Mihaly showed about interruption kills flow, and given that the evidence is absolutely overwhelming, that interruption has enormously increased for reasons that are so obvious, I don't need to tell anyone. Um, I do think there's good evidence that flow is happening less. And that, that again, even if, and that's one of the 12 factors. It's the thing with a lot of these, with these 12 causes that I write about in Stolen Focus, even if only one of them was happening, it would be damaging our attention. But so many of them are happening simultaneously that it's causing this very negative spiral for us. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yes. Very well said. Right, that leads us really then onto the technologies that are having a big impact on our ability to focus, that are making us switch. So we're to, let's specifically focus in the first instance on, on digital. So whether it be search engines like Google, social media companies like Twitter, you mentioned Snapchat, I don't go near it, or Instagram, stuff like that. And a nice line that you came out with in the book is in terms of Google, right? So success is measured in engagement, i.e. the longer you spend on any of these sites, Google, Twitter, Instagram, that is how they determine whether or not they are doing a good job intrinsically. You've gone absolutely to the heart of the Death Star here, right? I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley interviewing people who designed the world that is now obsessing us and our children, right? The devices, we, the, the, the apps we are using all the time. And they just explained it in, in, in a very obvious way. And I remember when they described it, I kept thinking, well, it can't be this simple. So basically, every time you pick up your phone, you open Facebook, they make, and they make more money. The longer you scroll, the more money they make. So all of their algorithm, and this is true of all the social media apps or the mainstream ones, all of their algorithmic power, all of their engineering genius goes towards one thing. How do I get Simon to pick up his phone more? And how do I get him to scroll for longer? That's it. That's how they're designed. This isn't the view just of these dissidents in Silicon Valley. This is what people at the heart of Facebook say. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook said, we designed it deliberately to maximally take people's attention we knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids. That's how he put it, right? Mm-hmm. Many other people who've been at the heart of Facebook have said the same thing. We now have leaked information from the heart of Facebook, thanks to Francis Haugen, talking about all sorts of ways in which their own data scientists have explained that it damages our collective and individual attention. Um, and in a way, that when I first heard that, I thought, fuck, well, then it's really overwhelming, right? If the whole machinery is designed to invade our attention, to sell our attention to advertisers, of course, because the longer you scroll, they make, well, every minute you scroll, they make money two ways. First way is obvious, we all know about, you see ads, everyone knows how that works. Second way is much more important. Everything you do on Facebook or all these other apps is scanned and sorted by their algorithms to figure out who you are to gather data on you. So let's say that you mention on Facebook that you like, I don't know, Kylie Minogue, Donald Trump, and you tell your mum you just bought some nappies. So the algorithm figures out, okay, this is a man who likes Kylie Minogue. He's probably gay. Uh, He likes Donald Trump. Okay, he's probably right wing. And he's talking about nappies. He's probably got a baby. And they're selling, they're building tens of thousands of data points like this, 
to sell your attention to advertisers. Because if I'm an advertiser selling, I don't know, nappies, you don't want to sell nappies to me. I haven't got a baby. You want to sell nappies to people with a baby. So they're constantly building up these two forms of revenue. And every time you close the app, those two crucial revenue streams go away. So when I was speaking to people in Silicon Valley, they said to me, look, actually, I would, I would just explain for a second an analogy that helped me to get this point. But I remember leaded petrol. I remember my mum filling out yeah. she had a little red mini yeah. and I remember her putting leaded petrol into it. Uh, it used to be common for people to use leaded petrol all the time. It was the main form of petrol. It also used to be common for people to paint their houses with leaded paint. And then it was discovered that exposure to lead in that way absolutely fucks children's focus and attention. It really harms it. So what did we do? We did not ban paint. You can see that my flat has been painted. We didn't ban petrol. I can see out the window cars going past that have got petrol in their tank. What we did is we banned the lead in the paint, right? And there's a really strong analogy with social media because the way these social media companies want us to think about this debate is are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech? which is bullshit. Because of course, when you hear that, you go, well, we're not going to join the Amish. We're not going to even do what I did in Provincetown and give this stuff up for three months, right? Um, so you just feel powerless then. You're just like, oh, of course I can't be anti-tech. So we just have to give in to this shitty form of tech. The debate is not, are you pro-tech or anti-tech? The debate is what tech working in whose interests, right? Because at the moment we have tech that is working to, against you, against your attention. But we can just as easily have tech that works for you and to heal your attention. So when I went to interview a guy called Aza Raskin, who designed a key part of how the internet works, and whose dad, Mark Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs, Aza said to me, look, the first step of the solution is really simple. You've just got to ban the current business model. Their business model at the moment is based on hacking your attention and selling it to the highest bidder. Just ban it. We banned lead paint. We don't allow it because it fucks up people's heads. We won't allow that business model. And lots of other people like Jaron Lanier, amazing technologist, loads of people said this to me. And I said to them, right, but okay, let's imagine we do that. The next day when I open Facebook, would it just say, sorry, mate, we've all gone fishing? And they said, of course not. What would happen is they would have to move to a different business model. And we know what those business models would be. One is subscription. Probably everyone listening subscribes to Netflix. We might subscribe to Facebook like that. Or another model, again, literally everyone listening has an experience of this, is think about the sewers, right? Uh, just behind me is my toilet. It connects to the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets. People died of cholera. So we all paid to build the sewers together and we all own the sewers together. I own the sewers in London. You own the sewers where you live. Um, and it might be that like we own the sewage pipes together. We want to own the information pipes together because you know, we're getting the attentional equivalent of cholera. But whatever the different business model we choose is, the key thing is the design profoundly changes when the business model changes. Because at the moment, it is designed to hack your attention. That's the only way it can work, right? That's how they make their money. Just like KFC wants you to buy fried chicken, Facebook wants you to keep scrolling. So like, I mean, a little KFC urge thing, that's <laughs> a craving, sorry. Um, but when you're, at the moment, you are not as famously people say in Silicon Valley, you are not the customer of Facebook. You are the product that Facebook sells to the advertisers. But when you move to these different business models, suddenly you're the customer. So they have to start asking not what does the advertiser want from Simon, but what does Simon want? Oh, Simon wants to be able to pay attention. I 
okay, let's start designing it not to hack his attention, but to heal his attention. Oh, Simon wants to meet up with his friends. Let's introduce a button where he can say, I'd like to meet up with my mates tonight. Does anyone else want to meet up? There's all sorts of ways Facebook could be re-engineered. I mean, the people I interview could do it in a day to heal mm. people's attention, not hack their attention. But that will only happen when Facebook and all these other companies move to that different business model. They're not going to do that on their own any more than the lead industry was ever going to go, do you know what, guys, we've made enough money, right? That's not how it works. They had to be made to do it through regulation in the same way we can do that to them as well. A couple of things I just want to sort of add on because I'm slightly conscious sure. of time. So you talked about social media, about other companies like Google. They are trying to create this image of us. So they want to know what we're like. So you describe it as a voodoo doll in the mm, book. So they That's a term they, for Mazer Raskin, yeah. They basically know us in many ways better than in some ways we know ourselves. Another thing that also they do, because all they want is screen time and attention, outrage is such a key thing. So for example, and that's why if you go on, let's say Twitter or YouTube, you know words like destroy, obliterate, outrage, disgusting, they are going to draw in your attention for the same reason that on the side of the road, if someone is selling a load of roses, even if they're the biggest bloom you've ever seen, you're not going to look at them if there's a car crash on the other side of the road. So this culture of rage and intolerance, and, and you talk about uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil and you know how he was essentially elected because of Facebook. So I just wanted to sort of touch on those things. And you talked about this sort of subscription model with Facebook. They're not going to do it on their own. So you're calling for government regulation, you know, and th even that a lot of people go, come on, that, that's never going to happen. However, government regulation, just as it was with leaded petrol, is ultimately the thing that's going to be able to get Facebook to work for us, to create something that is, is really in our own best interest, then using us to line the pockets essentially of advertisers. So I just want to park that to one, to one side, if that's all right, Johan, because sure. another thing that you uh, highlight in the book is just this sort of the rise in, in stress and the rise in the lack of free time for kids. So if you can just tie these two together, because I want to finish on what would be your prescription to get it solved, if you were. So I think it's important to touch on this, the rise in stress, how we're all hyper aroused and how kids are not as free as they once were. Yeah, so those are quite separate, but they're all, I mean, they're to some degree connected for the kids. But so if you want to understand the effect of stress, I think it really helps to think about COVID, which I know we're all sick of talking about and desperately wish we never had to talk about again. But a lot of people will remember it. when COVID first arrived and we were all locked down, apart from the heroic people who had to carry on going to hospitals and so on, loads of people I knew said, oh, I'm going to have loads of time at home. This is frightening, but... I'm finally going to learn French. I'm going to read War and Peace, all sorts of things. And no fuck I read War and Peace or learn French, right? In fact, people Googling, how do I get my brain to work went up by some staggering amount, right? In fact, people's focus, even though we have more free time, most of us, of course, with obviously heroic exceptions, uh, just focus collapsed. And we all just watched Tiger King and cried. Um, and I think there's a reason why that really helps us to understand this. It's something I learned 
before COVID. So the person I'm about to mention wasn't specifically talking about COVID, but I think it applies to it. So I interviewed an incredible woman called Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who's now the Surgeon General of California, the equivalent of Chris Whitty there. And Nadine said to me, Nadine had been studying this question for a long time. Nadine said to me, Dr. Burke-Harris said to me, imagine one day you were walking down the street and you were attacked by a bear and it just comes out the blue and you survive. In the weeks and months that follow, something completely involuntary will happen to your attention. You will start scanning the horizon for risks and dangers, right? You're going to be very vigilant to risk because something came out of the blue and your brain's going to be, shit, something else could come out of the blue. Be careful. And so it'll be harder for you to focus on the things that would sort of deeper focus, like reading a book, you know, doing your work because you're scanning for risk. Okay, now imagine you were attacked by a bear again you would likely get into what would be called a state called hypervigilance, which is where you will really struggle to focus and pay attention on immediate things because your attention has just flipped to looking for dangers, right? Um, and there was a, a doctor called Dr. John Giardini, who I interviewed in Adelaide in Australia, a child psychiatrist, who said to me, a psychiatrist for children, not a child who is a psychiatrist, that sounds weird, um, who he said to me, you know, deep attention is a really good strategy when you're safe. Sit down and read a book when you're safe, you'll grow, you'll know stuff. But deep attention is a really stupid strategy if you're in danger. If you're in, you'd be a fool if you sat at the Battle of the Somme reading a novel, right? When you're in danger, you want to be scanning the environment for risk. And I think what COVID did, it plunged a lot of us into a state of vigilance. Of course, about the virus, also about just the general weirdness of how our lives changed. I think one of the reasons we struggle to focus is because we were in a state of vigilance. Now, stress that is short of a global pandemic causes vigilance. So the more stressed you are, the harder it will be to pay attention because of vigilance, because you sleep less, because you crave foods that fuck your attention more. There's a whole array of reasons. So that's the stress element. And I talk in lots of practical ways about how we can reduce stress. I went to lots of places like an amazing company in New Zealand that had found an incredible way of reducing people's stress. But you went to, you also asked Simon about what to me, of all the lessons I learned for the book, this is the one I found most moving, is what we've done to our children quite separate from the technology, um, which is obviously a huge factor as well. So I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but for every one child who was diagnosed with ADHD when I was seven, there's now 100 children. And I think there's good evidence that's because there has actually been a rise in children's attention problems. Some of that is related to genetics, but human genetics haven't changed. What's changed is the environment. It's not a coincidence there's been a big rise in children's attention problems. At the same time, there has been a profound transformation of childhood. I would say to everyone who's my age, ask your mum and dad about their childhood. My mum and dad grew up in very different places. My mum grew up in a working class Scottish tenement and my dad grew up in a village uh, on the side of a mountain in Switzerland. And for both of them, their childhood was pretty much exactly the same. From when they were five years old, they would go to walk to school on their own. They'd bump into their friends. They would get to school. They would leave school on their own. They'd wander around for three or four hours with their mates and they'd go home when they were hungry. This is what human childhood was like for almost all humans throughout our history. Children played freely with other children, and that's how they learned all sorts of necessary skills. And in this, a very short period of time, that ended. By 2003, in the United States, only 10% of children ever 
played outside without adult supervision. And I think the figure was even those kids who did play outside, they got an average of like 10 minutes a week. So effectively, even before COVID, childhood became something that happened behind closed doors under tight adult supervision. We effectively put our kids under house arrest. And there's loads of aspects of that that damage attention. To give you a completely no shit Sherlock one, exercise boosts your ability to focus and pay attention. One of the best things you can do for kids who struggle to focus is let them go and run around. There's so much evidence on this. And we have massively reduced the amount of time children are able to run around, play freely. In fact, one of the only circumstances where our children get to feel they're exploring is when they're playing Fortnite and other video games. Um, so I went, I spent a lot of time with a totally amazing woman called Lenore Skenazi, who found a way we can overcome this. So she runs a group called letgrow.org. I really urge everyone who's a parent to go and look up letgrow.org. And it's very simple. Lenore realized if you're the only parent who sends your kid out to play, the child gets frightened and you seem like a nutter, right? In fact, in a lot of cases, if people did what my grandparents did and sent your five-year-old out, I mean, people would ring the police actually, right? Um, so Lenore set up a, runs this group called Let Grow. It did exist before her, but she's grown it. And what they do is they go to whole schools and whole neighborhoods and communities and persuade them step by step to restore childhood, to let their children play and grow outside, to have escalating levels of independence. And I'll never forget, I went to several of the Let Grow programs, but I'll never forget, it was one in, in Long Island. And I spoke to this boy, he was a 14-year-old boy, big, strapping 14-year-old boy living in a fancy part of Long Island. To give you a sense of what it's like, it's a, it's a place where the olive oil shop is across the road from the French bakery. And until Let Grow had begun, I think nine months before, his parents had never let him go out of his house on his own. They didn't even let him go for a jog around the block. And the way he described it to me, I said, why? He said, they were worried about, the exact words he used were, they were worried about all these kidnappings. There have never been any kidnappings of 14 year old boys in Long Island. He had a level of fear that would be appropriate if he lived in Medellin at the height of Pablo Escobar's terror, right? Um, and then because of this Let Grow program, because all the parents were doing it, he started to go out of his house with his friends. And what they had done, him and his mates, after about six months in, they went to the woods nearby and they built a fort together. And, and there was no mobile phone reception in the woods, but they still went to this fort and they sat together and they talked and they built things. And when this boy was talking about it, it was, I can't think of any other way. I know it sounds a bit melodramatic, but it was like watching him come to life, right? And I thought about how many 14 year olds I know in that situation who have never had that experience of just exploring anything except on a screen. And Lenore said to me, Lenore was with me when I was speaking to that boy. And when he left, Lenore said to me, you know, think about human history. For all of human history, adolescent boys and girls had to go out and explore. They had to hide, they had to seek, they had to build. And then in one generation, we stopped all of that. And then that boy, given a little bit of freedom, went into the woods and built a fort. We have got to restore childhood if we want our kids to be able to pay attention, if we want them to be psychologically healthy in any way, they've got to be able to have something that our ancestors would have recognized as a childhood. And I think COVID has really taught us 
We we literally imprisoned our children under COVID. I think for very good reasons. Of course, there's a debate about the benefits and costs of the lockdowns we've had, and let's set that aside for a minute. That's all we can all acknowledge, whether you're in favour of the lockdowns or I am or not, that it has come with a significant cost. Uh, the only debate is whether the benefits outweigh the cost. Um, and 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 part of that cost is, you know, we imprisoned our children and the time they've spent on screens has doubled. But one of the tragedies of this is actually imprisoning our children did not change their lives as much as it should have because they were already pretty imprisoned before. And as we reemerge, there's no point telling our kids to be off screens if that's the only place they get to explore anything and be free. We've got to give them a better life than this. And we absolutely can. This costs nothing to restore childhood. When Lenore goes and persuades parents, the first thing she always says to them is, tell me about something you did when you were a child that you don't allow your child to do. And people talk about how they would ride their bike into the woods. They would go, you know, they would climb tall trees, all sorts of things. We've got to restore this because it's profoundly crushing attention. It's fucking up their bodies through obesity. There's so many reasons. Sorry, I'm conscious that was a very long answer. Sorry, Simon. No, no, no. Absolutely spot on. And uh, I mean, I think I can certainly relate to that, the difference between my childhood and what I see with with our little girls. So there's a couple of things you mentioned that we're not going to get a chance to talk about. So uh, the impact of diet on people's attention, the impact of pollution on people's attention. But let's skip to your prescription, as it were, for what we can do beyond the individual steps that we, we should all be looking to take. Um, yeah, so just, just, and, yeah. and just before, before you say that, Johan, let me just tear sure. up with part of it is to do with the obsession with economic growth. This idea that we've got to keep growing, keep growing, keep growing more, 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 which is based into capitalism. And a few people have said, oh, you want to tear down capitalism. It's not that. It's about understanding that this the more mentality does have a limit. With that in mind, with that prefix, can you just, yeah, your prescription, as it were, to to dealing with this issue? Yeah, yeah. I always find it funny when people think, say, I'm anti-capitalist. I know, you I know. know. I mean, markets are a really useful tool. They're just not gods. Um, and the idea that that's some sort of radical anti-capitalist line, I find a bit funny. But the, no, I think the, the best way to understand it, because I'm aware that as I'm talking to people, a lot of people, when you talk about the big structural issues, because this is a systemic issue, right? A lot of people, very understandably, just think, oh, fuck, well, we're never going to get that sorted then, right? Well, you know, my God, if it's that big. And when people say that to me, and there are days when I feel that as well, um, I think about two things. Dr. James Williams, guy I mentioned before, said to me once, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before someone thought to put a handle on it. (laughs) The internet has existed for less than 10,000 days we can fix a lot of these things, right? A lot of these things are very recent. But also, this might sound weird, but I think a lot about my grandmothers. So I'm nearly 43. My grandmothers were the age I am now in 1963. I think about what my grandmother's lives were like in 1963. So uh, one of them was living in a Scottish tenement. The other one was living on the side of a mountain in Switzerland. Um, They had both left school when they were 13, even though the men in their families went on to school longer because no one gave a shit about girls learning anything. My Swiss grandmother loved to draw and paint. They said to her, shut up and get into the kitchen. But when they were the age I am now, neither of them were allowed to have bank accounts in their own name because they were married women. Um, It was legal for their husbands to rape them. 
And it was in fact legal all over the world for husbands to rape their wives. It was in practice legal for their husbands to beat the shit out of them because there was not one domestic violence refuge anywhere on earth. And the police never intervened in in domestic violence. Um, In the whole world, I mean, actually, my Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote. Um, In the whole world, there was no country that was run by a woman. There was no police force that was run by women. There was almost no company that was run by women. Men controlled everything and the society worked for men, right? So I think about that, how unbelievably daunting that must have seemed. And then I think about my niece, Erin, who's 17. Erin loves to draw and paint, right? She never knew my Swiss grandmother, sadly. Um, when my niece, we realised she was good at drawing and painting, we were like, oh, let's start looking up art schools, right? We weren't, you know, shut up and get into the kitchen. The, I, the gap between my niece's life and and my grandmother's life is almost unimaginable, right? If, if someone was suggested to go back to then that my niece shouldn't be allowed to vote that it should be legal to rape her that 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 she shouldn't be allowed to have a bank account I mean you'd be regarded as completely insane even like really far out misogynists don't say that now right what changed what changed is there was an ordinary movement of women lots of ordinary women got together and said we're just not going to take this shit anymore right and they organized and they fought and they fought and they're still fighting and we've still got a long way to go And when people say to me, oh, we'll never change this. Big tech is really powerful. I say to them, big tech is really powerful. It's not a hundredth as powerful as men were when my grandmothers were the age I am now in 1963. Men controlled literally every institution on earth and had controlled it, had controlled all of them for as long as those institutions had existed with the exception of a handful of hereditary monarchs a couple of times, right? A few times. All power can be challenged just like we needed a feminist and still need a feminist movement for women to reclaim their, their their bodies and their lives, I think we need to protect ourselves at an individual level. We need to do all the individual changes that I talk about in Stolen Focus. But I also think we need an attention movement to reclaim our minds. And it requires a shift in consciousness. It goes right back to what you were saying at the start, Simon, about blaming yourself. We need to stop blaming ourselves. If you can't focus, if you can't pay attention, it is not your fault this is happening to almost everyone around you. And we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies. We own our own minds and we can take them back if we want to from the forces that are stealing them. And we can protect our kids from those forces as well. But we have to change our consciousness and we have to take on these forces because they're weak. No fucker likes Facebook. No one likes these organizations. No one likes what they're doing to us. We can take on these forces. And you said before, even like when I mentioned taking on big tech, and I know you're you're channeling the reactions people have quite rightly, taking on big tech, regulating them. How are we going to do that? Think about what happened in Australia last year. Scott Morrison, the prime minister, not someone I'm normally politically sympathetic to, I have to say, he's a kind of um, pretty right wing guy, did a bold thing. Facebook makes loads of money from the fact that media is shared on their feeds, right? News sites, you know, the ABC, the Sydney Mm. Morning Herald, etc. But of course, they pay nothing to those organisations. So advertising has migrated. Advertising that used to go to newspapers and TV stations now goes overwhelming to Facebook. So it's bankrupting the media. So Scott Morrison said to Facebook, you've got to start giving a share of your profits to these media organisations. You profit from it. 
people go to your site in order to see these links. Um, so you've got to start giving a load of money. And Facebook went mental. They said they would cut off Australia from Facebook. They they cut off uh, news links entirely for a while. And then what happened? They gave in. Because governments and all of us are a lot more powerful than Facebook. So when we take on these forces, it is a fight. It is going to take time. It will require a lot of sustained effort and ironically attention, but it absolutely can be done. And this is true. Obviously, we haven't talked about most of the factors, which is great because it means people have to buy the book. Um, the, uh, uh, this is true of, with one exception of all of the 12 factors that I write about in the book. They've got to be tackled both at the personal level and the social level. There's one that can only be tackled at the social level. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, that was again a long caffeine. You cannot no, no, imagine no. how much caffeine I've had today. <laughs> Johan, <laughs> you're a very eloquent speaker. So listen, oh. I think it shows really that this belief that we are powerless isn't entirely accurate. And, you know, two things that I would just add to what you've said that I know that you advocate are the banning of surveillance capitalism. So getting rid of us being used as voodoo dolls and then also getting kids to play freely again. Johan, like I said, I've been a, a real fan of your work. I think this book oh. that I'm holding in my hands right now, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay, pay Attention. I devoured it in two days. It's, it's a compelling and important read. I'm not surprised that so many people are lining up to be so complimentary about it. So uh, again, I shall doff my cap to you and say really well done. And just to finish by saying it's been lovely talking to you. Oh, it's been lovely talking to you. I meant to say this thing. My publishers tase me, but it's, uh, it makes me sound like an absolute twat. Anyone who wants any more information about the book, uh, who wants to know where they can get the audio book, the ebook, or the physical book, or who wants to listen for free to audio clips of loads of the experts that we've talked about, can go to stolenfocusbook.com where they can hear what Hillary Clinton, Stephen Fry, Naomi Klein, and many other people have said about the book. Um, yes, so there you go. It does make me sound like a twat, but I've done it. There you go. Beautifully done. You're a <laughs> excellent at reading a script as well. <laughs> Johan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Oh, what did. a delight. Cheers, Simon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life Lessons with Johan Hari. I hope you enjoyed it. And I would definitely recommend his book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. I'll be delighted to hear your thoughts at Simon Mundy on social media. And a reminder to sign up for my newsletter, Monday on Monday, featuring the best hacks and nuggets from three and a half years of these conversations. Head to simonmundy.com to sign up. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.